Hi, everybody. That's working? Yep. How's it going? Good. Uh, my name's Mike, if you don't know me. I'm looking forward to preaching today and looking at the Word of God with you. Thanks, music team, for all your hard work. And I reckon perfect song to lead into the sermon today. Because basically what I want to do is, like that lyric, Behold the man upon the cross. So... We've been in this series about kingdom questions from the Gospel of Mark, and we're coming to another one today. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So, recently I finished my uni degree, which was good, Um, and at the start of my studies, I was very eagerly trying to impress, like, my lecturers kind of thing, and make a good impression. Um, and so I was given this, ve- it was just a very, you know, straightforward assignment. It was just a question and answer kind of assignment. But this desire to, like, really impress my lecturers led me to really miss the point of the assignment utterly. Um, and so I decided that what I'd do is, like, write this really in-depth essay on the topic. And I spent ages doing it. And I went way over the word limit, um, which I regularly do. <laughs> um, and I didn't really address the criteria of the assignment at all. I didn't do the whole question and answer thing. Um, and I created all this extra work for myself. And then I was grieved because my mark, you know, didn't sort of reflect the effort that I put in, and rightly so. And so like an elusive HD, which we're all out there trying to get, the kingdom of God is presented in scripture as this amazing jewel. It's not something we want to miss out on. But the very sad fact is, though, that some people fail to find it. And our passage today, Mark 10, 17 to 31, explores Jesus' interactions, sad interaction, I think, with a man who didn't enter or was unable to enter the kingdom of God. He really wanted to, but like me in my assignment, he missed the point. So today we'll explore, I hope, how we can avoid um, a similar sad circumstance. So let's read to begin. Is that going to work? Got the, yeah, got the passage up there. So Mark 10, 17 to 31. So as he, that's Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up um, and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must we do, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commands. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honour your mother and father. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go. Sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. 
Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But, may, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. So, I've just realised, can you skip just sort of to my first slide there, Isaac? Sorry, this isn't working. As in not the, yeah. Oh, no, sorry, not go on, but not the actual passage. <laughs> yeah, so as we dwell into this passage today, I hope we'll discover why this man missed out on entering the kingdom of God. But before I think we can understand that, it's essential for us to explore and get a bit of an understanding of who this guy is. So I thought I'd do that by comparing him with another guy from church history, and that's this dude, or this dude. Um, and I'm going to introduce you to him because I think he shares a lot of characteristics and similarities with the rich man that we've encountered in this passage. And so this guy's name is Nicholas, bear with me, Ludwig von Zinzendorf. <laughs> and in a lot of ways, Zinzendorf, <laughs> I might just call him Z from now on, reminds me of the rich man that we've already met. He was born in 1700 to one of Europe's top families, leading families within the Holy Roman um, Empire. And like the man in our passage, he was very wealthy. He had money in a society, uh, sorry, the man in our passage had money in a society that saw this as like the sign of God's favour. Favor. His wealth indicated to the other people around him that he potentially was blessed by God, or so it seemed. Then, this guy, Z, from an early age, um, was destined to be a count, a ruling kind of character in um, the Holy Roman Empire. And so he was tutored and trained and disciplined and cultured for this high service in 18th century Europe. And then 
our guy, the rich man, elsewhere in uh, Luke records, I think it's Luke, records that the man in this passage was also a ruler. I'm not exactly sure what kind of ruler he was, but he was successful at least, and he had obtained some kind of high position in, in his society. And not only that, but what we see in this passage is that he's kept commandments. His wealth and his success and all those things were actually created in the right way. He followed these commands. He wasn't just some slimy kind of politician who was, you know, power-grabbing left, right and centre or like a manipulative rich guy who was abusing his workers or something like that. And then also we see that both of the guys that we're looking at today were like religious people. Z inherited this um, really godly parents um, within Lutheranism and he remained a Lutheran throughout all of his days um, and his particular like brand of Lutheranism that he was influenced by was called pietism um, and the pietists were sort of formed like in response to Lutheranism at the time becoming fairly dry and you know just kind of nominal sort of situation and so it was all about this um, relationship with God and likewise the man in our passage is a religious guy who believes in God um, and he's interested in ideas like life after death or eternal life and he and he recognizes that these things just shouldn't be taken for granted right and then finally both of these guys we see that they're kind of spiritual seekers as a child Z used to apparently the story is that he used to write love letters to Jesus and then he would toss them out of his window um, as a kid which is kind of cute and then also this man the rich man he runs up to Jesus and he kneels before Jesus and so he displays like this sense of urgency and sincerity and an admiration for Jesus he was yeah serious about um, finding an answer he was serious about his quest but despite these kind of striking similarities between these two guys, their lives actually end up taking pretty different paths. So Z ended up living, I'd say, a life of intimacy and service of God. When he turned 21, he purchased this estate from his grandmother and he devoted himself while he was sort of... Um, devoting himself to uh, his high position in some government office, he had this vision of forming a Christian community on this land. Um, and that really occupied his mind. And it wasn't long until it found its fulfillment because what happened was a guy who was of this religious sect called the Moravians ended up on, at his door. And the Moravians were a persecuted minority from a neighbouring country and they were fleeing and trying to find refuge. And this man had heard that Z might actually offer that kind of refuge to them. And he did. And yeah, Z agreed to this request. And more Moravians flocked to uh, this community and it became quite a thriving place. And Z built an academy for them and a print shop and a hospital. 
and many people settled there. And actually people from other religious kind of sects and things, which is pretty cool. It was like quite a diverse community. And it became a place where people really, it seemed, genuinely loved each other. And this love also began to spill outwards. This community actually went on to found one of the first mission movements of the modern era. That wasn't like, you know, just sort of tied to colonialism. And so a tide of like these missionaries went out to Greenland and Georgia and Africa and Algeria and North America, Romania, all over the world. More than 70 Moravians within 20 years of this place being founded uh, had gone out from a community of only about 600 at that stage, which is pretty impressive, I think, especially at the time when you think about, you know, you couldn't just jump on a plane. This involved, you know, probably months of travel to get where they were going. And today, this man is remembered, as Karl Barth put it, as perhaps the only genuine Christocentric, which means someone who looks like Jesus, basically, of the modern age. Quite a high claim. He was the first Jesus freak. But while Z lived this really full life of intimacy with Jesus, the young man in our text goes from away from him, sorrowful or grieved. And so that's the question that we're going to circle around today. Why? Both men seem like, and you're meant to think, that they're both like ideal recruits for the kingdom of God. So what separates them? What did Z understand that the rich guy seems to have missed? And I think we should also note as we do this, that here in the Adelaide Hills, probably a lot of our lives look like these guys. You know, in that compared to most of the world, we're affluent. Even as young people here, we've got our lives ahead of us. Um, You know, probably someday some of us will have positions of power. And also a lot of us are sincere. And so this um, passage, right, it asks us, it asks similar questions to us. How do we avoid going away from Jesus grieved? And will we miss out on the kingdom of God? So, next slide, please, Isaac. To do this, I'm going to examine some points drawn out from this man's interaction with Jesus. And and I think they reveal why he missed out. And then what we can do not to miss out. (laughs) So, firstly, I think Jesus exposes his problem. What we see is that he missed out on the kingdom of God, I reckon, because he lacked something, but also because of something he has. And then secondly, we'll see that this problem is far worse than what we can imagine to begin with. Then we'll have a look at the solution. There's some hope, which is great. And then I hope to suggest some implications for our lives as we go about our days in the coming weeks. So next slide, please, Isaac. Firstly, in this passage, we'll see that Jesus exposes the reasons why this man missed out on the kingdom of God. He reveals that he failed to enter the kingdom of God, I think, for two reasons, as I said. Something he lacks and something he has. And first, we'll have a look at what I think he lacks, what Jesus shows he lacks. So the man asks Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. And here, eternal life in this passage is equated with entering the kingdom of God. 
In response, Jesus does something really interesting, I think. What he does is he lists some of the Ten Commandments. He says in verse 19, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud other people and honour your mother and father. And on the surface, this probably seems strange to us. Like, isn't Jesus meant to be on about a gospel of grace? Is Jesus being legalistic here? I think it's probably a bit more nuanced than that. And we'll, I think, I hope we'll see that it is. What we need to note is that it's curious, right, that Jesus um, begins his list at the, seventh, uh, at the sixth command, sorry, and he ends up going through the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth command. He picks out the commands that deal with how we deal with each other. They're commands about how we love the people around us. But I think it's really important to observe what, the command, what commands Jesus doesn't actually mention because he doesn't mention um, the first commandments about loving God. In verse 20, the man is able to, to sincerely say, right, that he's kept the commands that Jesus listed to him. And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't like throw it back at his face and say, well, no, you haven't. But can he say that he has kept the first four? Well, I think Jesus' following statement actually masterfully exposes that he hasn't kept those commands. After the man exclaims that he has kept all these commands from his youth, Jesus looks like Jesus adds to the list. He says, one thing you lack, go, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Again, it's kind of strange. Is Jesus being unfair and just nitpicking at this guy? Well, again, I think it's more nuanced. Jesus doesn't, I don't think, doesn't tell him here specifically what the one thing is. He tells the man that he's lacking one thing, right? And then he goes on and he gives him some directives. He says, sell what you've owned, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. But these directives can't be the one thing he mentions here because they aren't one thing. They're three things. So instead, I think what he's doing with these directives is he's testing the man. And he's exposing whether or not the man possesses the one thing. They expose his heart. Jesus is testing the, the man's allegiances. If the man really loved God as an expression of that, then he would leave everything and follow Jesus. But he fails that test. The man is unable Right? I think the point is like Jesus is showing him that he's unable to imagine a life where he doesn't have anything except Jesus. And so the man's failure to, to obey these directives from Jesus is evidence that he doesn't possess 
the most fundamental thing. And without it, everything else he's been trying to do is meaningless. It doesn't matter that he's just kept some of these commands and lived um, this great life if he doesn't have the fundamental thing. Jesus shows him that he's broken the first four commandments. He doesn't truly love God with all that he is and has. You see, the man um, doesn't lack some deep theological insight. Uh, He doesn't lack some deeper spiritual experience. Jesus shows him that the thing that he lacks is Jesus. And so... Jesus says to him, if you want to enter the kingdom, you'll find it where I am. Likewise, God must become what we love with all our heart and strength. If we want to find the kingdom of God, it's where he is. And then Jesus goes on. And I think what he does then is he shows the man exactly, he pinpoints exactly what what this man has that's preventing him from entering the kingdom of God. In verse 22, the man, he goes away from Jesus and he's disheartened and sorrowful. And the word sorrowful is meant to be like forceful. He's like grieved. He's really upset by it. And the reason why it's given It says, for he had great possessions. You see, Jesus exposes to the man where his affections are actually lying, where his affections lie. This intimate relationship with Jesus is impossible because something's getting in the way of it. Ultimately, he loved his wealth more than God. And the reason he doesn't then go and sell Everything and follow Jesus is because, frankly, money is his God. Of course, there in our lives, you know, we come up against many different things that can take the place of the one thing in our life. Um, it might be our money, like this rich guy. It might be our relationships. Um, it could even be our good things, like our ch- well, they're all good things, but it could be things like our children. Um, or our um, girlfriend or boyfriend or um, pleasing other people or uh, our career aspirations or going really well at uni. Like, probably is a bit like that for me. Everybody's got something. Jesus exposes, uh, and sorry, as Jesus exposes this man's heart, He also casts then a new light on all the good things he's been doing. Sure, he's he's been doing some great things. He's been doing all the right things, but he's been doing from the wrong them for the wrong reasons. Jesus shows him. Jesus exposes that we can keep all the commandments and have no love of God. Ultimately, this man is building up this store of moral wealth and good works to serve his desire 
to accumulate material wealth. He's trying to use these good things that he um, does to get some leverage over God. He's less interested in actually serving God than figuring out how to get God to serve him. And I think we're sadly prone to doing the same thing. We point to our achievements and all the good things that we've done and we say, God, look, yeah, I'm so amazing. Look what I've accomplished. Now you owe me. Answer my, my prayers. Give me my Ferrari already. We seek the, the benefits of God's kingdom without the king. And these efforts, make no mistake, alienate us from God. You see, if we want to avoid missing the kingdom, it's not enough simply just to um, live this moral life and to be a really good person. We must change how we relate to our good works, our gifts, and our successes. We must renounce how we've been using that stuff to try and fill God's place in our lives with other things. So if Jesus was to examine our allegiances today, what would he find? Are we about God or getting? And what's our church about? It's, I think it's been interesting, like pretty cool really that we've had some very similar sermons lately. Maybe God's trying to get us to think as a congregation about where are our allegiances? And it might be good. I'm just posing the question. What do we obey? And why do we obey? Do we observe the law to receive things from God? Or do we observe it because we love him? And I want to make a quick note before I move on. Sure, it's true. We all have a diff range of different idols, like I said. But verses 23 and 24 show us that wealth is a particularly dangerous idol. It has a particular power to constrain us and keep us from God's kingdom. It says, Jesus said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Warnings like this about wealth from Jesus are very common. <laughs> he actually doesn't say anything good about wealth. Ever, I don't think, as far as I know. For every time Jesus warns about things like sex, he warns about wealth and money ten times. And not only is wealth sort of just dangerous in a spiritual sense, but it can cause us to miss the kingdom of God in a very practical sense. You know, money can cause us to turn our backs on other people. It can destroy our relationships with others. It can turn us against us. It doesn't always, but it can. And it can set us up, I think in particular, in opposition to the poor. And I think we see that in our world. You know, a lot of the structures of our world are geared towards and set up to favour our Western nations. And, yeah. 
So this should force us to, ha- to ask some very hard questions about our lives, especially as rich Christians in a hungry world. Have we felt the weight of Jesus' words? And it's directed at me too. Have I felt the weight of Jesus' words? So then, how do we free ourselves from the grip of wealth? Sorry, can you go to my next slide, Isaac? Thanks. And how can we turn our backs on these idols that take God's place in our lives? And how can we come to love Jesus instead? Well, before we can see this, I'm sorry, but the story's got to get worse. I'm not trying to do a big downer, but we really need to see that Jesus shows this man that this problem is far, 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 far worse than what we care to admit. In verse 25, Jesus says to him, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. There's no way around Jesus' words here, I don't think. We can't avoid the powerful seduction of our idols, and in particular, wealth. Freeing ourselves from them is impossible. We can't do it. We're caught in a trap, and there doesn't seem to be an escape. And that's what Jesus is trying to show us. And we like to try and dodge and duck and get away from what Jesus says in these kinds of passages. And there's a number of ways that I sort of uh, thought, you know, we see this kind of evading. For example, um, some people often claim that Jesus isn't actually talking about a needle here. I'm not sure if you hear this. You might have heard this. Um, and it, this comes from a ninth, actually comes from a ninth century interpreter who he, what he did was he created the idea that the needle was actually referring to a low gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle, which camels can go through, but to do so they have to like stoop down and it's just difficult. So they say, you know, we can enter the kingdom of God by us, you know, our works. It is possible, but, you know, you just sort of got to humble yourself a bit. Um, and then we can enter the kingdom of God. As rich Christians, we are, I think, sometimes a bit like a friend-zoned guy. We're quick to go, oh, yes, great. So you're saying there is some chance. But unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, there isn't a chance. Um, <laughs> there's no way, there's a, a, this gate just didn't exist, right? There's, there's no way around that. Additionally, some of us concede, yes, okay, fine. Jesus is talking about our wealth. He's talking about our affluence. He's talking about our idols. He's saying it's this big impossible barrier to overcome. But then we dodge by saying, well, no, nah, he's not talking about me because I know people who have way more than what I have. And this is definitely my particular temptation. And the other day, I was cleaning out the boot of my car and I was struck by how much I have. Um, I'm pretty well known for having a very untidy car. And one friend even exclaimed that it was the worst smelling car they've ever driven in. (laughs) But in my defense, it's actually a lot better now. And also, it was particularly bad smelling that day because an apple juice... (laughs) Two-litre apple juice exploded and I couldn't be bothered cleaning it up. 
And so it was like festering away there for about a week. But yeah, anyway, that's beside the point. As I was cleaning out my car, what I found was like four or five pairs of shoes and also a lot of Macca's rubbish. And, you know, what it reminded me is that I definitely indulge in a lot of self-focused stuff that I just don't need, even though, you know, I'm not a billionaire. And Mark Twain once said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. I don't understand, I don't understand a lot about Revelation, really. And that does annoy me. But it doesn't bother me nearly as much as this conversation. Because I understand it. You see, in the end, this story just denies us from trying to find loopholes. We can't avoid the obvious. Just as large animals actually can't go through microscopic microscopic openings, the wealthy don't fit into the kingdom of God. And people with idols. So even this is applied to a devout rich man who has successfully kept all the laws um, governing social responsibilities. He can't fit either. And so the disciples are like really, really shocked. And in verse 26, they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, then who can be saved? They are shocked because in their wealth, in their day, wealth was understood as this blessing from God. And it was evidence that you'd done some good things, that you were virtuous. And so the disciples um, recognize that if this ideal recruit for the kingdom of God wasn't going to get in by his own means, then it's also out of our reach. It's out of everybody's reach. That's what's going on here, I think. The entry into the rich and all of us into the kingdom of God by our own human efforts is not just difficult, it's impossible. Wealth and other idols are impossible barriers to that prevent us from giving ourselves to God completely. And so no human power, no law observance can free us and free our hearts from the desire to serve other gods from other things. It's unavoidable. As my little brother Nick, who's at the back there, says in true internet slang, that's a big oofed. And it is. (laughs) So next slide, please, Isaac. So, how can we displace the power of wealth and other idols in our lives? How do we come to love God? At this point, the picture's looking pretty bleak. But unfortunately, sorry, it's not unfortunate, it's very fortunate that the story doesn't end yet. So far, we've considered the criteria for entering God's kingdom from a human perspective. We have seen that these criteria can't be met, even by the best people. But listen carefully um, to how Jesus answers the question that the disciples then put to him. In verse 27, in response to their question, who can be saved? Jesus looked out at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. 
here we have a simple, a very simple, but very profound promise. God makes salvation possible. What humans can't do, God can do and does. It's his kingdom. And so we are not limited by our, you know, our human possibilities and calculations. Miracles are his specialty, right? It's only God's power that can save us from our idols. Apart from grace, this decent, God-fearing, war-abiding guy doesn't have any hope. And neither do we. Only by God's miraculous grace, miraculous grace, is there any possibility that he and we can enter the kingdom of God? And that's why we're here. Praise God. Freeing ourselves from our love of wealth and other idols and all these things to truly love God is only possible because of his work. The onus is on him. So how is this accomplished? Well, it isn't really explicit in this passage. It just opens up that possibility, this passage. But it does contain, contain sorry, some hints that um, point us forward. In particular, the context around this helps give us a bit of a bigger picture of what this might look like. Um, so a number of things point us forward to this seismic event that's coming up in Mark's gospel. And so if we look at the structure of Mark's gospel, we see that we're in this section of, um, of Mark where Jesus is on a journey. And what we have is we're presented with these like pictures of Jesus in particular regions, going from region to region. So where's he headed? Well, if we actually continue, I'm going to go just briefly past the actual passage for today. If we read verses 32 and 34... We'll see. Jesus predicts his death here. They were on their way up to Jerusalem. That's where he's headed. With Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished. While those who followed him were, af who were afraid. I really like that picture of these worried people following Jesus. It's just kind of a cool picture. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them, what was going to happen to him. And so they're all still freaking out about what Jesus has just said. Um, and so Jesus takes them aside and gives them the game plan. And by the way, he's given them the game plan a lot of times already. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And then three days later, he will rise. You see, Jesus is on a journey of self-denial, rejection, and it will end in suffering. And this is profound, because I think Jesus actually looks a lot like the rich young ruler, and not in the bad sense. He was... In the bosom of the Father, it says, 
which is, I think, meant to be like a bit of a picture of like a banquet where you're all sort of reclining on each other and it's a good, great time, very intimate. He enjoyed the incomprehensible glory of the Godhead. He was ultimately wealthy. He, he had the ultimate wealth. But unlike the rich young ruler, he is willing and he does. He leaves it behind him. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you who know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, sorry, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. He is the ultimate rich young ruler, right? He gave away the ultimate wealth. He went to the deepest poverty. Why? For us. Poor us. Spiritually poor us. And us who were once idolaters. He did it for us. You know, we can abandon our idols only when this amazing truth takes hold of us. Only when we see that what he has done. Only when that begins to really move us and move through us and amaze us can we avoid the seductive power of our idols. You see, the only way to counter the power of idols and other money in our and sorry, idols and also money in our lives is to see the ultimate rich young ruler who gave away everything to come after us so that we don't need to miss out on the kingdom of God. Can you take me to my next slide? Thanks, Isaac. So, to answer the original question I posed about the rich young man and this guy, Zinzendorf, what separates them? What differentiates them? Well, Zinzendorf completed, after he'd completed his studies, um, what you used to do in those days was go, and if you were you know, a person of means, you'd go on a grand tour of the centres of learning throughout Europe, which would have been pretty amazing. Um, but all of his life, the young Count Zinzendorf would point to one experience on this tour of Europe, which influenced him the most. And it was at an art museum at Dusseldorf. There he encountered Jesus. He saw Fetis behold the man, which is this painting. A portrait of the throne crowned Jesus. And he read the, the inscription below it. I have done this for you, it said. What have you done for me? Sinzendorf said to himself, I have loved him, being Jesus, for a long time but I've never actually done anything for him. From now on, I will do whatever he needs me to do. You see, that's the solution. That's where hope begins. Behold the man. So my final point, Isaac, can you flip us over? Thanks. How shall we then live, especially as wealthy people? And that is very small, I'm sorry. We are now ready to return, I think, to Jesus' directives to this young man. Jesus commanded this rich guy to do three things as an expression of love for him. 
to sell what he owned, to give money to the poor, and then to come and follow Jesus. And the point is not to be legalistic about these things. There's no right or wrong percentage or anything like that. But seeing Jesus on the cross makes this kind of life possible. As we are captivated by his love for us, we're then free to deny ourselves for other people and for him. You see, like the rich man, Jesus invites us to follow him on this journey of self-denial where we're willing to lose our lives for him and for others. That means we should be a people with lives and also we don't often like to talk about it, but bank accounts and wallets that communicate a sacrificial love for God and for others, where our standard for generosity is the cross. Naturally, you're probably wondering, well, what does that mean for my life? What does that mean for my life? I'm wondering the same. Does Jesus just want us all to be like living in poverty? Well, I don't think so. Poverty is not a good thing. There's no doubt about that. We give to the poor, and Jesus commands us to do that, because it's actually a bad thing. It's not good to be poor. But if we're not supposed to be, you know, walking away tonight and just living in squalor, what are we supposed to be doing? Well, let's read on the final little bit of our passage. Verse 28 to 31. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. You see, in response to all of this, Jesus says that those who give away their possessions extravagantly will receive a hundred times over what they, what they have in this present age. And we're not talking about the prosperity gospel here. So I'm sorry, selling a house probably doesn't mean that you're going to get another hundred. Um, sorry, where am I? Instead, when we give and sacrifice ourselves and our stuff in pursuit of Jesus, we step into a new community of other people who are also following Jesus and who give to each other, both of themselves and their things, their time, their care, extravagantly whenever there is need. And it spills over. It's not limited to here. Jesus isn't calling us to a life of poverty necessarily. He might but to a life of generous community. The opposite of poverty isn't possessions, it's community, where we make a habit right, of giving well past the point of reason for others when they need it. So I sort of observed um, earlier that wealth can pull us apart and it can divide us and it can cause all these issues. But by taking up this way of life, of self-denial, we are brought together in an intimate fellowship with each other. 
which is pretty amazing. Um, and I'm stealing from Mark from last week and giving you a quote from Henri Nguyen. He said, The great paradox which scripture reveals to us is that the, that the real and total freedom is only found through downward mobility. The word of God came down to us and lived amongst us as a peasant. The divine way is indeed the downward way. And so the downward road is not the road to hell, but the road to heaven. Jesus invites all of us to quit, you know, climbing ladders for their own sake, to keep, to quit telling ourselves that if we just had that little bit more, then that would fix things for us. He tells us to quit our misguided journey upwards and he invites us instead on a journey down to a life centred on downward mobility, on generosity and simplicity and community. Sounds good to me. And on the way down, we find that he's not trying to drag our lives into some living hell, but a living heaven. So let's pray to finish and maybe the band would like to come up. Dear God, we thank you so much for what you've done for us, Lord. Help us, God. We need you. Lord, it is impossible for us to free ourselves from our idols, the things that we put above you, Lord. We pray that you would intervene in our lives. Lord, thank you that you have. Lord, we behold the man upon a cross. And God, yeah, we pray that in doing so, you would transform our lives, that you would make us generous people who are generous with our time and our spirit, our care, our money. Lord, that we would love you and love other people around us. God, as we worship to finish off here tonight, we pray that you'd continue to speak us, transform us, Thank you that we don't do this in our own power and it's not about our works and our good things and all that sort of stuff, Lord. But it's your power. It's your miraculous grace. And God, we just thank you for the people as well out there who have sacrificed a lot. I pray that you would be with them, that you would comfort them and help us to care for them too. And all these things we pray, we thank you, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.